Well, we're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We are starting a new series today uh, in the Beatitudes uh, that we will be in, Lord willing, for the next couple of months. And so we live in a world where people talk a lot about being blessed. We say that a lot. That's a term you used. I'm so blessed. Uh, the Lord really has blessed me. And few are the ones that say that are the ones that Jesus said actually abide in a blessed state like he talks about in Beatitudes. We live in a world where people long for happiness. You know, but the happiness of this world is fleeting. It's hard to catch, and when you catch it, it seems to go away. You know, somebody buys a new car, they're happy. They crash the car, they're not happy, right? It's circumstantial, right? Um, and so up and down. And so how do you get a happiness that's not really based in the things of this world? How do you get a happiness that's, that's less an emotion and more a state of being? How do you know truly that you are blessed by God and all that entails? Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to be in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, looking at what is known as the Beatitudes. And that word, Beatitude, is not actually in the text, but it means blessed or happy. And as we study the Beatitudes, we learn about who Jesus says is truly blessed or favored by God. You know, I can think of nothing more important in life than to know that you are favored by God or that you are in a right relationship and that all is right between you and God. And so that's what we're going to be studying in the Beatitudes. Who does Jesus say is, has, has it well with their soul between them and God? That's what the Beatitudes really tell us. And so the Beatitudes are sort of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and so, which is the most famous uh, sermon that's ever been preached. And so let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read the whole Beatitudes this morning just so we can understand where we're going, and we're going to focus on the first three verses today. So Matthew chapter 5, it's on the screen for you this morning, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is presented by Matthew as the true king. The son of God, the anointed one, the Messiah. And in, Matthew even sets everything up by showing us that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David by giving us the genealogy in Matthew 1. And so the, kind of the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the king and the king has come. And so in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we see the, kind of the, the anthem of Jesus' message is this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that's what Jesus begins to, to preach. And the Sermon on the Mount begins over in chapter 5. And Matthew puts it right here towards the beginning of his gospel because this is kind of the, the, just the heart of Jesus' message. And the heart of that message is the Beatitudes. And so the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, some of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, 
is the king's message on what life is supposed to be like for his subjects, or in other words, for those who are in the kingdom. This is how Christians are supposed to live. Jesus says in Matthew 4, he calls the disciples and he says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. You get to the Sermon on the Mount and he says, okay, he's, he's preaching the kingdom of heavens at hand. You get to the Sermon on the Mount and he's saying, now this is life in the kingdom. If you're a part of the kingdom of God, this is how you're supposed to live. This is your standard that I'm calling you to. This is what it means to live like a Christian. You notice there in the first two verses, it says, Jesus seeing the crowds went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, the disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and began to teach. That seems insignificant when you read it. You kind of read it fast. Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. I believe that's there for a very important reason. He wants you to remember Moses. When he went up on the mountain to what? To receive the Ten Commandments. So after Israel had been delivered from Egypt and from years of captivity, after they had been the Egyptians had been drowned in the Red Sea as they came after Israel, God gave Israel the law, the law of God, the Mosaic law, and he gave them the, the Ten Commandments, which we're so familiar with. And the way they got those Ten Commandments is one particular man, Moses, God picked him out as a representative, and he, he went up on a mountain and spent time with God, and God gave him the Ten Commandments. And just as Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law from God, Jesus now goes up on a mountain to interpret the law for us to be able to understand. And if you want to know the right and accurate interpretation, it comes from the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is going to explain how God's people are supposed to live in light of the new covenant that's going to be enacted with his blood. And remember, Moses went and received the law after Israel had been saved through the Red Sea. God rescued them out of Egypt. He rescued them out of the, through the Red Sea. And then God gave them the law. And in the same way, don't think of the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes as something you do to get saved. These are because we are saved. Jesus gave it after he began to call people to follow him. This is not some ladder you climb to try to get right with God and, and to get saved and to, and to be God's chosen ones or to be God's blessed ones and to, to know that you have a relationship with God. This is because I have a relationship with God, because I've come to God through Jesus, this is how I'm supposed to live. This is the because we are saved, life in Christ. And there are two groups present we see there in the first two verses. There's the disciples, and there's the crowds. And it says, Jesus, seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, and the disciples come to him. Now, why did they come to him when he sat down? In their culture, they, didn't, they did it reverse from the way we're doing it this morning. You are seated, and I'm standing teaching. In their culture, the rabbi sat generally, and people would stand around him as he taught many times. And so Jesus assumes the posture of a teacher. And here's how you know a disciple. A disciple is someone, number one, who when Jesus is teaching, they are listening. And they're in the posture of a learning. So the disciples come to him. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. And it's important to understand that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are delivered to believers, to disciples. Like I said, it's not rungs to a ladder to heaven. It's not what it is. But notice that the crowds are listening. And in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it tells us that the crowds are overhearing everything he's teaching, that they must be gathering around too because they're blown away by the authority with which Jesus taught. Typically, when a rabbi would get up and teach, he would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this. And based on that, we can say, Jesus got up and says, here's what the law means. You've heard this. I say this. That was authority. They weren't used to that. And he could do that because he's the son of God. And when a non-Christian, out of the crowd, so to speak, hears messages from the Sermon on the Mount, it's not meant to show you how you need to do more or work harder or be better 
so that you can be a Christian. That's not the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It's to make you see your need for the King and His grace. And then Jesus goes into the Beatitudes starting in verse 3. which are These statements are the introduction to the sermon. It, the rest of the sermon flows out of this. You have to get this to get the rest. This is the intro. And because it's so centered, because it's such the center of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, you see it pop up again throughout the New Testament. You see it illustrated in parables and in stories and in other things Jesus taught. The Beatitudes are central to understanding so much of Jesus' teaching. And what the Beatitudes are, are statements of blessing that are characteristics of those who are in the kingdom. Jesus is describing what a real Christian is. Not just what you should aim to be. What you are, if you're a Christian. These are statements about heart condition of the believer. These are aimed at the heart. Because Jesus came, and in the New Covenant, we're promised new hearts. And the eight Beatitudes are all connected. It's not that some believers, you know, well, you know, I'm poor in spirit, but I'm not merciful at all. Well, you're not a Christian. We're not perfect in anything. We're not perfect in any of these. But Christians are people that are, if Jesus doesn't say you're a Christian, listen, then you're not a Christian. He gets to determine who's saved or not. And the Beatitudes, one of the reasons we have them is to describe for us what Christianity looks like. You can't be in the kingdom and not have any characteristics of citizens of the kingdom. And so they're all together, just like the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody will say, well, I'm not loving, but I sure am joyful. Well, you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit. It's not fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. And the Beatitudes are all connected. They go together. And they kind of build on one another. And we're going to see that starting this morning, that unless you understand the first Beatitude, the others just kind of fall apart in terms of understanding. But you can't be in the kingdom and not have characteristics of the kingdom. If somebody came this morning and said, you know, we, we, we just had a baby, Pastor. Oh, great. And they were holding a baby doll, right? I'd say, is this the baby? Yeah, this is the baby. I'd say, this is not the baby. Well, how do you know it's not the baby? Because, well, it, it's not a human being. And it doesn't have any characteristics of what a living human being has. This is a doll, not a new baby. It doesn't have characteristics of life. And in the same way is with Christianity. If the characteristics of life, if the characteristics of salvation, if the characteristics of the kingdom are not there, then it's just not there. And the word Jesus uses to describe these people these blessed ones, this is the word blessed. That's an important word to understand since we're going to see it every week. And the Greek word markarius literally means blessed, happy, fortunate, or favored by God. It's kind of a hard word in our language to, to grasp because we've so watered down what it means to be happy. We've kind of, we define it differently than Jesus would have defined it. And our sense of happiness just doesn't cut it. We've, we've turned it into a word that's circumstantial. A fleeting feeling that's easily taken away and that's not what this word is. This word is the state of those who have favor with God. They are the fortunate ones. They have God's favor on their life. This ultimately leads to a happiness that's not even recognized in our world today. It's lasting deep and seated and deep seated and rooted in knowing all is right between you and God. It says, I know all it is well with my soul. All is right between me and God. It's more about a state of being than it really is a feeling, to be real honest, I believe. And so the very first beatitude Jesus gives us this morning is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God and unless we understand the poor in spirit that unlocks everything else now three things 
Number one, the poor in spirit are people who recognize their position before God. So what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, he's talking about people who recognize their true position before God. He's not saying those without economic means. Over in Luke, it says, blessed are the poor. And you say, well, is he just talking about blessed are the financially poor? Uh, well, Matthew helps us understand, and he gives us the full, because you can be poor in a lot of things. You can be poor in money, you can be poor in education, you can be poor in, you know, personality. <laughs> you can be poor in a lot of things. What are you talking about? He said, poor in spirit, Matthew says. And the word poor there means severe poverty. It's the Greek word patohos. It means poor, pitiful, inferior, and needy. One person pointed out how you, you almost sound like you're spitting when you say it. It was because these were the people that were just considered the despised of their culture, the outcasts. It was a word used for beggars in their day. Some commentators even point out how the word actually carried the idea of bending and crouching to beg. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are bending, crouching beggars of spirit. They are the ones who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And the idea is poverty of spirit. Someone who sees themselves as spiritually bankrupt and empty before God. Someone who comes to God crouching and bending and begging. They know they are sinful and broken and empty and incapable and powerless to please God. It's a humility before God that I understand that I literally have nothing to bring to the table and offer Him. I am weak and incapable of doing anything on my own to please Him, to offer Him. I am helpless. And everyone is poor in spirit, in a sense. Everyone's poor before God. Everyone's, everyone has this poverty before God. There's not a person on the planet that doesn't have it. But everyone's not blessed. Everyone does not fall into this category. Why is that? Because the poor in spirit are those who know they are poor in spirit and they feel it. That's the difference. Everyone's poor before God, but the poor in spirit are those who know it, sense it, and feel it. You can be poor and not know it, right? You can be smart and not know it. You can be funny and not know it. And you can be annoying and not know it. You can be all those things, right? And you can be poor and not know it. And so the poor in spirit are those who know it. They sense it. They feel it. They understand. They recognize who I am before a holy, omnipotent God. And this whole idea that the poor in spirit, the empty before God, the broken, are the ones who are blessed, flies in the face of the world's way and our culture's way, as all the Beatitudes do. It's countercultural. It's upside down from what our world would say. For instance, we live in a world that's rich with books on self-help. People make tons of money to tell you all that you can do, how much you are capable of. We live in a world where we've built entire social media personalities, in many cases, to show how awesome, capable, great, and self-sufficient we really are. People are told their greatest problem is a lack of confidence in themselves. If you just believe in yourself, you can do anything you wanted to. It flies in the face of all that. Our world is blinded to its real need and because our world is centered on the self and has been since the fall. And I want you to go back, as we do often, to Genesis 3 and think about the way Satan tempted Eve. This is part of chapter 3, verse 5 of Genesis. Satan says to Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, this fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now remember, they had been told you can eat of every tree in the garden but this one tree, the first human. And Satan tries to, he begins to twist and all. And finally, he just says, you know what? God just doesn't want you to be like him. He wants you to be dependent on him. He wants you to think you need him, but you don't need him. You could be like, if you just eat this fruit, you could be like, you could be your own God. See, that's what Satan tempted Eve with, the idea that she could be like God, that she didn't need God. 
that she could be all she needed. And ever since then, man has been trying to live independent from God. Like we don't need him. Self-sufficient with no need for him. And this is why every other religion in the world other than Christianity is centered on good works. Every single one has an element of works in them. Of doing something to be favored by God. And religion ultimately is about you trying to get your way to God through effort, through works, through sacrifice and sincerity and living in a way where God will accept you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is about God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ and offering us salvation freely. But see, you won't come to him unless you know you need him. And you've got to come to him on his terms. The poor in spirit are those who say, I can't save myself. On a scale of 1 to 10 before God, I'm a zero. I'm nothing. And there's a big difference, listen, in seeing yourself as poor and bankrupt before God and seeing in yourself someone who is lacking in perfection. Let's say today you go to the ATM to get some cash out and there's no money in there. And you find out that some old bubba has hacked your account and he has taken his honey all over the world with your money, right? He's taken her on some sort of trip and now you've got no money in the bank. But here's what you know. If you have a job, you know you've got a job and you're going to make more money. And if you've got a bank account, you know that more than likely your, your bank is going to help cover that. And here's what, it's going to take a little while and there's going to be a lot of headache and red tape to get your money back. And you're going to have a bad week and you're going to have a bad day, but you're not bankrupt. You're lacking and it, it's difficult. The poor in spirit are those that realize they have no resources to put something into the account between them and God. They're not imperfect. They're worse than imperfect. They're empty. It's not the people who think they need God's grace to get them through a rough patch in life. It's the poor, the beggar of spirit who realizes I am nothing before God. Pastor Tim Keller points out how many think that God owes them something. And rather than being poor in spirit, they are, as he says, middle class in spirit. (laughs) They feel they've worked hard for the most part, done a good job, been a good person, and God owes them some answered prayers, right? They negotiate with God, but that's not the poor in spirit. If I'm truly poor in spirit, it means I come to God holding nothing in my hands. I don't come bringing my resume of moral goodness. I don't come bringing my sincere efforts. I don't come with my spiritual heritage or my godly parents or grandparents or financial prowess or success in this world or all the talents that I think I bring to the table. I come with nothing begging for grace. The poor in spirit recognize they're standing before God. Number two, the poor in spirit choose radical dependence on God. They are those who depend on God. Pastor J.D. Greer said it this way, poverty of spirit means we embrace daily dependence on God for all that we need. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in his book on the Sermon on the Mount that when the Sermon on the Mount is like coming to a great big mountain and you're told that you have to climb this mountain and you have to ascend to the top of this mountain But you're also told the first step in realizing that you have to climb this mountain is to realize that you can't climb this mountain. That in and of yourself, it is impossible for you to climb this mountain. And if you begin to think or try to climb this mountain on your own, it is, as Lloyd-Jones says, proof positive that you've never understood it in the first place. He goes on to say that being poor in spirit is really about your attitude towards yourself. 
And Jesus says it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who see themselves in light of who God is, and it drives them to dependence on God. They realize, I can't do this. I need God. And this is what begins at conversion. It's salvation. You realize, I have nothing to bring to God. I'm empty. I'm desperate. I'm a sinner. I'm a beggar. Christians are beggars of spirit. When you see a beggar on the road, what are they saying? They're saying, there's nothing else I can do but depend on you to help me. That's what they're saying. Let me ask you, have you ever had to ask for help in a way that attacked your pride? Maybe you were in a financial rough spot at some point in your life and had to ask a friend or family member for some financial help, and that was hard. Maybe you consider yourself an expert in an area, but you ran up against a problem you couldn't solve and had to go to a coworker or a friend and kind of admit that they knew more than you did and ask for their help there. It attacks your pride when you have to humble yourself that way. And that's the reason it's hard is because humans are naturally prideful. And human nature says be independent. Stand on your own two feet. But the poor in spirit recognize that I must be dependent on God. See, this is a posture that you assume at conversion, at salvation, and it continues throughout life. Others have pointed out that the clearest picture of the poor in spirit in the New Testament is demonstrated in a parable Jesus told. It's going to be on the screen for you. Very well-known parable of Jesus is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to read it for you. You can follow along on the screen. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice he said Jesus told, Luke tells us, Jesus told this story to address those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And this is the crux of the problem. Depending on ourselves, trusting in ourselves. The Pharisee, everyone thought, would be the accepted one and the tax collector, the rejected one. And Jesus tells a story where the Pharisees rejected and the tax collectors accepted. Why does he do that? Because he wants them to understand. It has nothing to do with the external. It's about the heart. And the Pharisee from the outside is the one everybody thought would be favored by God. And Jesus says, nope, he's the one rejected. And the tax collectors accepted because God's looking at their heart. And the Pharisee's trusting in himself. The Pharisee thanks God that he's not like other men. That he's better than others. He thinks unlike others that he has something to offer God. He fasts. He gives. He tithes. His hands are full because his heart is centered on himself. So he comes to God like this and says, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like him and I'm so much better than that. I thank you that I'm not so immoral. I thank you that I'm not a pervert like that guy. I thank you that I'm more generous than other people. I thank you... I mean, he's praying to God about himself. He might as well be praying to himself. And listen, if you think in getting you that God has gotten a steal, then you don't have a clue about the gospel or Christianity yet. His problem is comparison. 
The rich in spirit see themselves in relation to others. The middle class in spirit see themselves in relation to others. I'm not as bad as pick the person. At least I don't pick the sin. The poor in spirit see themselves in comparison to God. They see God, they see themselves, and the Spirit of God reveals to them their utter poverty before God. And Christian, you must be careful, we must be careful when you're tempted to compare yourself to someone else to figure out if you're walking with God or not. Your cousin, who hasn't been to church in five years, is not your standard. They're probably not even a Christian. That's not how you figure out if you're godly or not. God is the standard. We look at God, we look at Jesus, and we're driven to poverty in spirit. The tax collector can't even look up. He's standing far off. His whole disposition conveys nothingness. He can't even look at heaven. He's ashamed, he's broken, he's empty. And here's the kicker. What does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where does he go? He goes to God and just pleads for mercy. He's like a beggar. And one man is impressed with himself and trusts himself, and he completely misses God. And the other man sees himself for what he is, empty, bankrupt, and poor, and comes to God empty-handed and casts himself on God's mercy. One comes like this and receives nothing. One comes like this and receives everything. One walked away with God. One walked away an enemy of God. And when we see ourselves as bankrupt before God, it will drive us to dependency on God. You can't be filled with God's spirit if you're full of yourself. You can't come to God rich. It's the poor in spirit that know they need God to save them. Those full of themselves do not look to God for a saving grace. And if they do come to Him, they come with their hands full on their terms, offering their works and their morality and their religion, and they're unable to receive God's grace because there's no room for it in their lives. Jesus said it's the sick that need a doctor, not the healthy. It's the poor that need saving and rescuing. This isn't only true in salvation, but all the Christian life. We don't become less aware, but more aware of our condition and our need and more dependent on God as we grow in Christ. So it's true in our, as we parent, as we think about sharing our faith, serving in the local church, stewarding our gifts and resources, changing our attitude. Christians are not the ones who know that, quote-unquote, we can do it. We are those who know our weakness and that God alone is sufficient to do it. Harry Johnson, in his book, When Grace Transforms, gives the example that the Bible is full of examples of the poor in spirit greatly used by God. Let me read you a few of them. Moses. In Exodus 3, when God tells Moses what he must do and go into Pharaoh, Moses says in verse 11 to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Gideon, when he's chosen by God to rescue the Israelites, in Judges 6.15 says, and Gideon said to God, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. King David in 2 Samuel seven eighteen. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And then in the New Testament, Peter. Apostle Peter in Luke 5, 8, when he sees one of the miracles Jesus did, it says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Spiritual power is not in realizing how great you are. It's not in your potential. 
Spiritual power resides in those who ask, who am I and how can I? That is where it begins. You say, who am I to share my faith with my friends? You're on the right course. Who am I to raise these children that I have to know and love the Lord? Now you get it. Who am I to reach my prodigal child who's wandered away from God? Exactly. Who are you? Who am I to fix my broken marriage? Bingo. How can I, of all people, overcome my struggles and my failures, my hang-ups, my addictions? You can't. See, our spiritual strength has and always will lie in understanding our weakness. Maybe you've forgotten this this morning. So you're not powerful and you're not capable. And spiritual power and victory comes in recognizing that because that's what drives us to depending on the Lord who is all-powerful and who is capable. And who's able to do far more than we can ask or think according to the power that's at work within us. That's His power. Third statement. The poor in spirit know God and will spend eternity with God. Jesus says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this is what he means. Theirs and nobody else's. Jesus said it's these, those who know their bankruptcy, their insufficiency. It's those and only those who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. Now you see in in the New Testament the term kingdom of heaven and the term kingdom of God. And some people believe there's a difference. I believe it's, it's interchangeable. Just two ways to describe the same thing. And both terms mean the same thing. And it's the rule and reign of God. That's what the kingdom of God is in its purest sense. The rule and the reign of God. And the reign of God has come, we learn in the New Testament, in the first advent of Christ. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has come. Repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. But it's not consummated. It doesn't come in finality until the second advent when Jesus returns the second time, when when he comes back. And when people repent of their sin, and when they put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, they submit to Him as King. And Christ begins to rule and reign in their heart and life. And kingdom citizens are believers, and believers are kingdom citizens. They're Christians. And Christians are those whom Christ rules and reigns in their heart and life as King. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the way we experience that now is we experience the reign of Christ in our life. And we will experience it in finality. See, there's, a, there's an already not yet tension in the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is here, and the kingdom of heaven and its finality is yet to come. And it's here. And so we experience Jesus ruling and reigning. That's how you experience life change. You say, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. No kidding. Because when Jesus rules your heart and life, things change. So I'm the same person I've always been. Jesus is not ruling and reigning over your heart. See what I'm saying? And we're in this already not yet tension, but there's coming a day where we will experience the kingdom in finality. Jesus is going to literally rule over the new heaven and the new earth. He's going to literally rule in a millennial reign. And right now we live in this tension as we await that, but we experience his rule in our heart and our life. And that's why at times in the Beatitudes you'll see present tense and times you'll see future tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next week, they shall be comforted. It wants you to feel that tension. There's a sense that you experience things now. There's a sense in things you wait on for later. We have foretaste now. We get finality later. And it's the poor in spirit who Jesus says will spend eternity with Jesus in his kingdom. And it's the poor in spirit who truly have Jesus ruling and reigning in their heart and life in the here and now. And in a sense, Jesus is saying this. It is those who come to God with nothing who leave with everything. 
And those that come to God with anything, leave with nothing. You come empty. Any attempt to do things in our power is proof that in that moment, we're not actually yielding to Christ as king in our life at that moment. And that can be a struggle. That can be something we wrestle with. So we have to remind ourselves as Christians constantly that who we are before God. So you say, what do I do? What do I, what do, I do here? What, what's the so what of the message? I don't think I can say it any better than Martin Lloyd-Jones did in his book. As he drew his chapter to a close, he simply said this, look at God. You want to become poor in spirit? Look at God. You want to be driven to greater dependency on God as a believer? Continue to look at God. A while back, I remember being in a conversation uh, with a married couple. And he was a, um, or is a, like a composer, professional musician, excellent classically trained pianist and all this kind of stuff, singer, songwriter, all this. And, and somebody asked his wife, she said, now do you play the piano? And she said, uh, well, I thought I did. And then I met and married him, and I realized, no, I do not play the piano. Perspective, right? Humility. It's kind of like uh, the high school football team going to the Super Bowl. Do you play football? Well, I thought I did. Right? It, it's, a, it's a singer going to a Celine Dion concert. Do you sing? Well, I, I thought I did. It's perspective. When you see something better, greater, more majestic than you, it's humbling and it puts things in perspective. You understand you and your limitations better when you see something better and greater than you. Imagine what it's like to behold God. What does that do for your confidence? <laughs> to behold God in all of His glory. And it's through beholding God that we recognize and become aware of our poverty of spirit. All those people that I read to you earlier, those examples of the poor in spirit, every single one of those examples, they were interacting with God. They were talking to God or they were talking to Jesus when it happened. No better example than Isaiah chapter 6. It's going to be on the screen for you. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. This is his calling and his commissioning from the Lord that happens at an incredible time in the history of Israel. King Uzziah has died. So the throne, in a sense, is empty, getting ready for the next king. And here's God's prophet and what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. I believe he saw the pre-incarnate Christ. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's basically saying, I'm a sinner, they're a sinner, we're all sinners, oh no, right? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It is when Isaiah came face to face with God that he realized his true state before God. 
and it was woe is me. And in the Bible, woe is the opposite of blessed. That's why you'll see in the New Testament, Jesus gives the Beatitudes, blessed, 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 blessed. And then he goes and he deals with the hypocrites and the Pharisees of that day. And he says, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. He's saying reverse, he's saying converse. Blessed is the state of it's good with you and God. Woe literally means you're cursed. You're accursed. And you can't be blessed until you say woe. Until you understand your true state before God. And that's what happens with Isaiah. Woe is me, says the poor in spirit. I'm lost. It is then that he experienced God's grace. It is then that God sent him on mission after this. He says, who can I send? And Isaiah says, send me, right? And it happens after this experience. It's in weakness that God gives us his grace and his strength and sends us on mission and all these things. And believer, you are not less poor in spirit today than you were at conversion. The closer you walk with the Lord, the closer we walk with the Lord, the more we will see our need for Him. That we don't need Him less, we need Him more than ever. You become more aware of your poverty in spirit as you grow closer to the Lord. And one of the keys to the Christian life is remembering how you are spiritually poor and empty in and of yourself. It's realizing how dependent you are on the Lord and on His power. So much so that he gave you his spirit so you can actually live the Christian life. That's how dependent we are on him. He actually put his spirit within us. He gave us a new heart. We're in such need of his help that he had to give us a new heart and give us his spirit so that we would walk in his commandments. And we still don't do that perfectly, do we? And won't this side of heaven. So what do we need to do? We need to continually behold God in his word so we stay dependent on him. Read the Bible. Think about what you read in the Bible. Come to church. Hear God's word preached and taught. Get in a small group and talk about God's word. It, that's how you experience God speaking to you through the word. Say, I want to hear God speak to me. Read the Bible. I want to hear God speak out loud. Read it out loud. Listen to it on tape. CD, audio, whatever. God speaks through his word. And pray. Nothing says I need God like prayer. And nothing says I don't need God like not praying. Pray and daily confess your need for God and His grace and His strength and His help. Remind yourself daily of your dependency on Him. And ask God to help you become increasingly aware of your need for Him. Because it is when you are weak that you are spiritually strong. For some this morning, this means that for the first time, maybe you've realized your poverty of spirit before the Lord and you need to be saved. Maybe you've went through the motions. Maybe you've even been baptized and joined a church. Maybe you said a prayer when you were eight years old. And my only question is this, have you ever come to God poor and empty? Not trying your best? We have to be real careful with the lingo we use. I gave my life to Jesus. What does that mean? If you mean that you surrendered your life over to control of him, great. If you think you're really bringing something to him and somehow meriting salvation, wrong. We come to God empty and say just mercy, grace. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been broken before God? Have you ever realized your sinfulness and the emptiness you have before God? Have you ever been humbled before the Lord? Have you ever seen your need for grace? 
not for a mechanical process. Have you had an experience with the Spirit of God where He moves on your heart and shows you your only hope is Jesus and His cross and His resurrection power and that your only hope is Him? Has that ever happened to you? You say, I don't know. I would want to know. The good news is that while we are poor in spirit and broken and empty, the Lord Jesus, the righteous one, lived the life we can't live, died in our place, rose again. And all these beatitudes are invitations to us to be blessed, to come to him. If you're not a Christian, you're supposed to hear this, blessed are the poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and it's supposed to like pitching water to a dry tongue and make you and make you see your need for God. And if you are a Christian, it's supposed to drive you to deeper dependence upon the Lord because it's the blessed ones, the beatitude, those that understand their condition before God and who they are in God, those that Jesus describes in those first 12 chapters who are able to live out by the power of His Spirit and by His grace, not perfectly, but able to walk in applying the Sermon on the Mount to their life. Because apart from Him, and apart from His grace, and apart from His mercy, and apart from Him doing it through you, it will crush you to try to do that in your strength. And you'll be miserable, and you'll be a legalist, and you will hate Christianity, because you won't have Christianity. And it will drive you to despair, drive you nuts. You'll be miserable. Unless you first say, I'm poor in spirit. I can't do this. I need Jesus. Let's pray.